The title of the the session is The Messianic Vision of Zechariah, Prophet, Priest, King, Divine Son, and Suffering Servant. So I would like to pray with you as we get our hearts ready to go to the Word of God together. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the gathered uh, people that you have redeemed and, and elected and chosen before the foundation of the world and, and brought them together to worship your Son, Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah. <laughs> Father, now as we go to your Word, I, I pray that you would show us the things that are true about your Son. Show us the things that are true about the, the long-awaited Messiah, the Savior, the Christ, who would come into this world. Uh, enlighten our minds and our hearts to see him clearly this morning. Amen. What did they expect? We're all familiar with the concept of expectations. A simple definition of the word supplied by Google would be a strong belief that something will happen in the future. I think we've all had different expectations in our own lives. We've all certainly had some expectations that were met, and perhaps some that went yet unmet. Um, When you graduated high school, did you find what you expected? When the real world hit you with bills, bosses, and bozos, was it what you expected? Maybe you hope to be a manager or a partner in the company you now work at, but you're still just pushing projects to earn a living. Or perhaps there are relationships in your life that didn't turn out the way you wanted. I think we can all agree that the greatest source of disappointments in life come from unmet expectations. The greatest cause for discontentment, discouragement, or even anger is unmet expectations. And I would suggest that unmet expectations are often improper, misinformed, or even unfair expectations. Which is why I believe that so many Jews could reject Jesus as their Messiah when he arrived on the earth over 2,000 years ago. Who were they expecting? After waiting thousands of years for the fulfilled promises of God to send the Messiah, who were they expecting? How was it that they met the Son of God incarnate and ended up having him crucified on a Roman cross? Who did they expect? This morning we're going to ask a related question, who should they have expected? Which is a question we can answer by going back to the Old Testament to consider at how the prophets described and predicted the Messiah to come. In John 5, 39 Uh, Jesus rebuked the religious, religious leaders of his day for their false expectations in the Old Testament, stating, You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. But it is these that testify about me. So I want to look at Zechariah this morning with you to see who should they have expected. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Zechariah. And I do want to set a little bit of context for studying Zechariah and this message on the Messiah. For starters, we need to define our term, our key term of this message, Messiah. And that is a word that comes from Hebrew, Mashiach, which means anointed one. And that is then translated into Greek as Christos, or Christ. 
It is a title, not Jesus' last name. And it's important to note that throughout Israel's history, prophets, priests, kings were all leaders who were called anointed ones. That is, they were specifically set apart for the task of leading God's people by a ceremonial anointing, having oil poured over their heads. Prophets are called anointed ones in Psalm 105.15. The Levites were anointed as priests in Leviticus 8. King David was anointed in 1 Samuel 16, accompanied with the Holy Spirit, coming upon him with great might, setting the precedent for anointing the kings after him. However, while various men are called anointed or lowercase messiahs throughout the Old Testament, this term eventually became a technical word for God's promised one, the one who he had chosen to send as the Savior and the Lord, the Messiah. See, the Old Testament sets an expectation for a day when the Messiah would come to fulfill all the roles of prophet, priest, and king. We can see this by the time of Daniel in the ninth chapter of his prophecy, predicting the 69 weeks leading up to the Messiah's death. That prophecy was written around 536 B.C., before Christ was even born, and it set the expectation of a very specific Messiah. 560 years later, when Jesus did arrive, the biggest question he faced was, are you the Christ? Are you the Messiah? Are you the one we should expect? And as New Testament Christians, we agree with Peter's confession in Matthew 16 that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. So Zechariah, being written about 520 years before Christ, during the latter years of Old Testament revelation, comes to us at the height of building expectations. If you know your Old Testament history, you remember that this was during the return of Israel from the Babylonian exile. After the unraveling of Israel's covenant treachery, Yahweh had brought two catastrophic events to discipline his people. In 722 BC, the northern kingdom, also called Israel or Samaria, then was captured by the Assyrians. Uh, then beginning in 605 BC, the Chaldeans under Nebuchadnezzar began to exile the Jews out of Jerusalem into Babylon. In 587, Jerusalem was sacked. The temple t- built by Solomon was destroyed and Judah ceased to exist as a sovereign nation. But the Chaldeans didn't keep control over the empire forever. Uh, Cyrus, the king of Persia, subdued the land in 539 BC, then issued the decree allowing Jews to return to Jerusalem out of Babylon in 538, as prophesied in Isaiah 44, 28, and recorded in 2 Chronicles 36 and Ezra 1. When they arrived in Jerusalem in 538, the Jews were full of excitement and expectation. They were reminded of God's covenant. Once again, in the promised land with a vast number of descendants, finding those who curse them to be cursed and those who bless them to be blessed. They zealously began to rebuild the city and the temple of God, expecting God again to dwell with them. But just two years in, facing external opposition as well as internal complacency, they gave up. They quit. They left aside the reconstruction project of the temple. Instead, they gave their attention to 
establishing their own lives and building their own homes with wooden paneling and fine finishing. Meanwhile, the house of the Lord remained forsaken. That's when God appointed two prophets, Zechariah and Haggai, to arise and preach against the spiritual lethargy of his people. Therefore, as we look at the book of Zechariah this morning, you need to keep the primary purpose of his ministry in mind. He was sent to exhort the Jews to finish building the temple and to renew their dedication to Yahweh. I do want to pause here after unloading a bit of historical data on you uh, to just draw a practical parallel between the audience of Zechariah's day and us here and now. You see, the people of God were wrestling with the times between hope and realization, promise and fulfillment, expectation and completion. They saw evidences of God's faithfulness to them. They saw tangible affirmations that God will keep his promises of a land, a seed, and a blessing. But they were still waiting, hoping, expecting. The one thing they had not yet seen was the arrival of Messiah. Just like us, we too are expecting the Messiah at his return. We are hoping for his deliverance out of this world into his glory. We are waiting for Christ to bring the culmination of salvation. And we have the benefits of standing on this side of his first coming. The testimony of his, his birth, his life, his death, resurrection, and ascension give us assurance that God will accomplish his plan of redemption. So Zechariah's message should also encourage us as we renew our dedication to the Lord, perhaps, as we wait, as we persevere through the times in this world. What would motivate the Jews to renew their commitment to Yahweh? What was going to strengthen their conviction to live for him? It's a message about the Messiah, the long-awaited Christ. I would argue that Zechariah described and predicted the Messiah more than any other prophet in the Old Testament. The greatest contribution of this prophecy is that Zechariah weaved together many messianic themes from earlier passages and brought them together to clarify and to further develop the right expectations. So what we end up with in Zechariah is a glorious vision of who the Messiah was to be. In Zechariah, we behold the glory of Christ like nowhere else in the Old Testament. I have five points to get through in this message, each identifying a specific expectation of who Christ was to be. These five points will overlap for sure. Some will be given more time than others. But together, they will provide a thorough answer to the question, who should they have expected? So let's begin with point one. Messiah, the sent prophet. Remember the New Testament expectations of a prophet. Think of the Gospel of John in chapter 1, in verses 19 to 25, where John the Baptist was beginning his ministry as the forerunner of Christ. And notice the questions John faced. They asked him, who are you? Implication being, are you the Christ? To which he answered, no, he did not deny, but he confessed, I am not the Christ. So they asked him, are you Elijah? Which he also answered, no, I'm not Elijah. And then this, are you the prophet? Later in chapter 6 of John, in verse 14, when Jesus had fed the 5,000, the crowd's conclusion from seeing this great sign was this, 
This is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. Then in chapter 7, the crowd began to wonder if Jesus really was the Christ. The tension increased by verse 31 with the crowd wondering how anyone could ever do more signs than this man. But their expectations were not yet very clear. As in verses 40 to 42, they did expect a prophet, but they couldn't yet connect this with their expectation of the Messiah as a Davidic king. The prophet coming from Galilee like Jonah couldn't possibly be a king from Bethlehem. Could he? Who should they have expected? Well, to find an answer, we need to begin all the way back in Deuteronomy. Go to Deuteronomy chapter 18. Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 15 to 18. This is Moses speaking. Yahweh your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among, your, from among you, from your countrymen. You shall listen to him. This is according to all that you asked of Yahweh your God in Horeb on the day of the assembly, saying, Let me not hear again the voice of Yahweh my God. Let me not see this great fire anymore, or I will die. Yahweh said to me, They have spoken well. I will raise up a prophet from among their countrymen like you, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. I shall come, it shall come about that whoever will not listen to my words, which he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. Now there are two important points to make here. First, this text clearly sets an expectation that God would send a prophet to his people. One would arise from the sons of Israel as a prophet like Moses. But secondly, this text also gives some clarity on what a prophet is. At the most basic level, a prophet is a spokesman of God, a chosen instrument appointed to speak the word of God to the people of God. But there's also a deeper, more theological definition of a prophet being conveyed in this passage. Look there in verse 16. These words that Moses quoted back to the people of Israel are from Sinai. When Yahweh had descended on the mountain in a thick cloud with thunder, lightning, and an earthquake, the people were terrified at the demonstration of God's holiness. And they begged Moses to stand between them and God, to go before the Holy One, receive his word, then come and proclaim it to them. And this was Pleasing to God, as verse 17 shows us. They rightly feared God and understood that they had need of a mediator. See, one of the first truths we all must come to recognize about God is that He is holy. We are not, and we are in desperate need of a mediator. A mediator is someone who represents one party to another, much like lawyers do today. If you were going to go stand before a judge to face charges of a crime, you would likely hire a lawyer, someone who could stand before the judge on your behalf, address the allegations made against you, and plead your case for you. That's a mediator, one who stands as a representative for another. And that's what it meant to be a prophet. It was to be a mediator, to stand before the people of God as a representative of God to speak on his behalf, to give his message to his people. Moses was the first prophet 
and mediator. He was the one Yahweh sent to his people to represent him and speak his word. Remember the defining moment for Moses at the burning bush in Exodus 3, where he was commissioned and sent to deliver Israel out of Egypt. His number one concern was, how will the people know you sent me? So Moses was given the ability to do great signs and wonders so that they would know Yahweh sent him, that he represented God and spoke for God. The plagues and wonders that were evidence of of God's power with Moses so that the people would know his words were to be trusted and obeyed. There's one more thing to note in Deuteronomy before we move on. Go to the end of the book in chapter 34. Here we read of Moses' death. and see this in verses 10 to 12. Since that time, no prophet has arisen in Israel like Moses, whom Yahweh knew face to face. For all the signs and wonders which Yahweh sent him to perform in the land of Egypt against Pharaoh, all his servants, and all his land, and for all the mighty power, and for all the great terror which Moses performed in the sight of all Israel. The expectation for a prophet had not yet been met. There was no man who could do the miracles Moses had done. There was no man who could represent God like Moses had. Israel had to wait. Fast forward another 500 years, another prophet of great power did arise, and his name was Elijah. He did miracles. He showed the power of God in the face of a false god, Baal, and he met with God on the same mountain Moses met with God in 1 Kings 19 on Mount Horeb, that is Sinai. Elijah seemed to be a prophet like Moses. Yet in 2 Kings 2, Elijah was taken up in a whirlwind to heaven. Elijah departed. Elisha followed, he did some miracles, but still no prophet arose as the perfect and permanent mediator between God and man. At the very end of the Old Testament in Malachi chapter 4 verse 5, God said, Behold, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of Yahweh. The anticipation for a prophet remained. The people were still waiting. Which is why we come to Zechariah around 400 years after Elijah and 500 years before Jesus. I believe that Zechariah highlights the expectation of a prophet like Moses. Starting in chapter 1, verse 7, Zechariah was given a series of eight visions that draws our attention to a specific prophetic figure. I'm going to read from verse 8 onward. I saw at night, and behold... A man was riding on a red horse. He was standing among the myrtle trees which were in the ravine, with red, sorrel, and white horses behind him. Then I said, My Lord, what are these? And the angel who was speaking with me said to me, I will show you what these are. And the man who was standing among the myrtle trees answered and said, These are those whom Yahweh has sent to patrol the earth. So they answered the angel of Yahweh who was standing among the myrtle trees and said, We have patrolled the earth, and behold, all the earth is peaceful and quiet. Then the angel of Yahweh said, O Yahweh of hosts, how long will you have no compassion for Jerusalem and the cities of Judah, with which you have been indignant these seventy years? Yahweh answered the angel who was speaking with me with gracious words, comforting words. Still the angel who was speaking with me said to me, 
proclaimed, saying, Thus says Yahweh of hosts, I'm exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and Zion, but I'm very angry with the nations who are at ease. For while I was only a little angry, they furthered the disaster. Therefore, thus says Yahweh, I will return to Jerusalem with compassion. My house will be built in it, declares Yahweh of hosts, and a measuring line will be stretched over Jerusalem. Again, proclaim, saying, Thus says Yahweh of hosts, My cities will again overflow with prosperity, and Yahweh will again comfort Zion and again choose Jerusalem. This text is a bit difficult to follow. It introduces numerous persons while leaving their identities a bit ambiguous. Who does Zechariah address as Lord, Adonai, in verse 9? Who is the man standing among the myrtle trees, or the angels, or angel? The characters seem to blend together in dialogue with Zechariah, and commentators are left scratching their heads wondering how many individuals are actually in this scene. But I believe even the mysterious identity of whom Zechariah was interacting with is meant to highlight the significance of this vision. Try to identify the speakers with me. First, in verse 8, we meet the man. He's noticed first, he's positioned at the front of the horses, which is a military animal, supposing his prominence and authority. And he's identified as one standing among the myrtles. Second, in verse 9, uh, Zechariah calls someone, my Lord, and, he, and the one who answers him is the angel standing among the myrtles. And the angel speaking with me, sorry. And it's important to note right there, at this point, the importance of angels in Scripture. The word angel, malach, in Hebrew, literally means messenger. And this word was often applied to human servants sent by their master to deliver a message. But more specifically, this term is applied to spiritual beings created by God as his servants, often tasked with bringing divine revelation to man as a heavenly mediator. Angels then, much like prophets, were chosen instruments sent to proclaim God's word to God's people. Their appearances rare in the Bible, and therefore notable. Back to verse 10, the one who now answers Zechariah is is called the man, again, who was standing among the myrtles. So was it the angel, or was it the man who answered to Zechariah? Already their identities are becoming clouded. Third, in verse 11, it's not the man, but the angel of Yahweh, called as the one standing among the myrtles. The angel of Yahweh is now being equated with the man. Verse 12, the angel of Yahweh interceded with Yahweh of hosts, and then Yahweh answered in verse 13, not the angel of Yahweh, but the angel speaking with me. The angel of Yahweh is equated with the angel speaking with me. Fourth, in verses 20 to 21, Yahweh himself Give Zechariah the revelation. See, there's a complex, almost confusing interchange between the, the man, the angel speaking with Zechariah, the angel of Yahweh and Yahweh himself, that causes us to wonder who is who. But I believe it's because these characters are all the same being. It's God 
And this isn't unique to this vision in Zechariah either. In Genesis 18.1, we are told Yahweh himself appeared to Abraham by the trees, that is, by the oaks of Mamre. But in verse 2, the narrative describes three men standing before Zechariah. Then in Then Abraham addressed one of them as Lord, Adonai, just like Zechariah in our text. And then from verse 13 on, the one speaking with Abraham is identified as Yahweh, the Lord himself. And finally, in chapter 19, verse 1, two of the visitors are also called angels. A similar theophany is found in Judges 13, where the angel of Yahweh appeared to Manoah and his wife. To predict the miraculous birth of their son, Samson. The angel is identified as a a man in verses 6, 10, and 11, but as the angel of God in verse 9. Then in verse 18, he says his name is wonderful or majestic. As the chapter concludes, Manoah comes to the realization that he is speaking with God himself. He is terrified, he is fearful for who can see God and not die. You see, the angel of Yahweh is a very specific Old Testament character distinct from all other angels. He is the divine person attributed with the qualities and authority of God himself. He is the Lord, Yahweh, revealing himself to man often in the likeness of a man. The invisible spirit shining forth as physical glory. The creator making himself known to his creation the eternal entering the temporal. So in Zechariah 1, the appearance of the angel like a man among the trees was none other than God himself in perfect representation. In fact, the angel of Yahweh is equated with God in chapter 12, verse 8 of Zechariah, where the house of David is compared with God that is like the angel of Yahweh. He's also a distinct person, not to be confused as God the Father, because he's able to pray to and speak with the Lord of hosts in chapter 1, verse 12. And this angel, of course, is the eternal Son of God. Before he stepped into the world as God incarnate, Jesus Christ, the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his nature, who came as the final word from God, as Hebrews 1 tells us. The word became flesh, John 1. This is none, there's none more suitable to stand in as God's representative messenger to mediate the word of God for his people than his own son, the second person of the Trinity. Like the parable of the master of the vineyard, God had sent many servants to his people, the prophets. But time after time, again and again, they rejected the prophet's stone and beat them, cast them out of the city. So eventually God said, I'll send my son. Surely they will respect him. But they rejected him. As the New Testament shows us, they only saw this as their opportunity to beat and kill the son for their own gain. Now you might still be wondering how this all proves the Messiah or the angel of Yahweh is a prophet like Moses, I'm glad you are. Turn to chapter 2, where the angel speaks to Zechariah on behalf of God. See in verse 8, the angel is speaking as the one sent after glory to deliver God's people from those who plunder them as slaves. 
After glory he has sent me against the nations which plunder you, for he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. For behold, I will wave my hand over them so that they will be plunder for their slaves. Then you will know that Yahweh of hosts has sent me. Verse 10, furthermore, sorry. The angel quotes Isaiah 65 promising to restore Jerusalem, which will result in many nations coming to Lord. And again, in verse 11, when that happens, they will know Yahweh sent him. Sound familiar? Just like Moses had delivered Israel out of Egypt by the power of God and his staff, so the angel of Yahweh here as a prophet will one day deliver his people with the wave of his hand. This angelic prophet, the pre-incarnate son of God, is described just like Moses, and and this is a prediction of a second exodus. The prophet sent from above will be validated by the signs and great wonders, just like Moses was. The same expectation is repeated in chapter 4, verse 9, Chapter 6, verse 15, where the finishing of the temple would be a sign to validate that Yahweh had sent this prophet. That's why in the Gospel of John, Jesus identified himself over and over again as the one whom the Father sent, speaking the words of the Father and doing the works the Father had given him to do. If you do not believe his words, believe his works. Jesus, the incarnate Son of God, who had appeared as the angel of Yahweh to Zechariah, is the prophet like Moses. And as Christians, we can rejoice that we too have a mediator who can stand between the Holy One and us and reveal his word to us. When you hear the word of Christ, you see the glory of God. That brings us to point number two, Messiah the royal priest. There aren't that many explicit New Testament expressions of the people expecting a priest. But Jesus himself demonstrated that they should have. In John 2, he entered the center of priestly activities, the temple, and cleansed it by chasing out the robbers with a whip. Then he declared to the people in verse 19, Destroy this temple, and I will rebuild it in three days speaking of his own body as a a new temple, a new place where intercession and atonement would be made for his people. He would be the embodiment of the Old Testament priesthood himself. There's also Hebrews chapters 5 and 7 that remind believers of God's promise in Psalm 110.4 that of an eternal priest, according to the order of Melchizedek. And all the way back in Leviticus, there was... Uh, a promise by Yahweh after he had anointed his priests that their portion would remain forever. Their anointing, their role was to be permanent. They should have expected a priest. So what does Zechariah contribute to the expectation of a priest? Well, much like Moses, the angel of Yahweh was a mediator who functioned not only as a, a prophet, but also as a priest, making intercession for the forgiveness of his people. You'll remember that Moses interceded for the sons of Israel in Exodus 32 after they had stirred up his wrath by worshiping the golden calf, to which Yahweh responded by relenting from his wrath, showing Nacham, that is pity. Then in Zechariah, 
chapter 1, verse 12, the angel intercedes for Jerusalem, saying, O Lord of hosts, how long will you have no compassion for Jerusalem and the cities of Judah, with which you have been indignant these 70 years? And to which Yahweh answered immediately in verse 13, with words of grace and nacham, pity or comfort. See, the angel stood before God as the intercessor, just like Moses, and God responded in exactly the same way with relenting pity, Nacham. This is where both Moses and the angel's roles overlap as prophet and priest. The priest was another mediator responsible to intercede for the people of God and make sacrifices for them before God. That is, the priest was to go to God as a representative for the people to pray and make atonement for the forgiveness of their sins. Now turn to chapter 3. Here in the fourth vision, Zechariah sees Joshua the high priest in the temple. A very priestly scene, to be sure. And Joshua stood before the angel of Yahweh with Satan, the accuser, beside him bringing accusations against him. In verse 2, Yahweh said to angel, that is, the angel now identified as Yahweh himself, Yahweh rebuke you, Satan. Indeed, Yahweh who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Then in verses 3 and 4, Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and standing before the angel. But he, that is Yahweh, spoke and said to those who were standing before him, saying, remove the filthy garments from him. Again, he said to him, See, I have taken away your iniquity from you and will clothe you with festal robes. He interceded for Joshua, then removed his sin. It was only the high priest who had the right to bear away the sins of another priest. As the Lord had spoken to Aaron in Numbers 18, verse 1, You and your sons and your father's house with you shall bear the iniquity related to the temple, And you and your sons with you shall bear the iniquity associated with your priesthood. Only the high priest could atone for the sins of other priests. Therefore, in Zechariah 3, when the angel of Yahweh declared the removal of Joshua's sin, it was a foreshadow of the divine priesthood of the Son of God, pointing to the incarnation of the Messiah as our great high priest, who became our perfect representative taking on the likeness of men, yet without sin, and now lives forever to make intercession for us. This isn't the only significant priestly scene in Zechariah either. You can go to chapter 6, verses 12 and 13, speak again of the rebuilding of the temple, the center of priestly activities. And in the second half of verse 13, there's a, a significant prophecy of a future union between the priesthood and the throne. Yes, it is he who will build the temple of Yahweh, and he will bear the the honor and sit and rule on his throne. Thus, he will be a priest on his throne, and the council of peace will be between the two offices. A priest would be the king. At first glance, this might not seem like a big deal, but if you remember all the way back to 1 Samuel 15 and Israel's very first king, Saul, tried to take priestly matters into his own hands. He disobeyed the command of the Lord to wait for Samuel to perform the sacrifices, and he took the place as a priest. He disobeyed the command of the Lord, 
And he thought that his presumptuous offering would be more important than obedience. Ever since that moment, it was a stigma for a king to function as priest. Furthermore, the the priesthood was of the Levites, right? While the kingdom, according to Genesis 49, was promised to the tribe of Judah. So here in Zechariah 6, the union between the priesthood and the throne joined the prediction of a future priest with the expectation that already existed for a future king. A priest not from the lineage of Levi, but one who would also have the right to the kingdom. Much like Melchizedek, that mysterious man in Genesis 14 who had no genealogy as king of Salem and priest of the God Most High. The representative Israel needed had to be a royal priest. That's exactly what is expressed in Psalm 110, a, a psalm of David that mentions that priesthood after the order of Melchizedek forever. They should have accept, expected a royal priest. And that leads us into point three. Messiah, the Davidic king. The expectation for a messianic king was definitely the clearest expectation in the New Testament. The very first words in the New Testament in Matthew chapter 1 introduce the arrival of Christ as the son of David, one from the royal lineage. Throughout Jesus' life, as the messianic anticipations grew, the people continuously desired to make him king. Not prophet, not priest, but king. They were primarily waiting for a king. They wanted a political savior to free them from Roman dominion and return the kingdom to Israel. They wanted complete rule by the Davidic king to fulfill all of God's promises, which wasn't misinformed either. Go back to Second Samuel 7 with me for a moment. Second Samuel 7, a text in... Your Bible that you should definitely be familiar with as good biblical students. From verses 8 to 17, we get what is called the Davidic covenant. I'm going to start reading verse 12. God, speaking to David, says, When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant or seed after you, who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. God promised that David would have a seed, a son on the throne of Israel forever. This was initially applied to Solomon and the royal descendants thereafter, but ultimately no human king was able to rule perfectly or forever. They were waiting for a future Davidic king. Now go back to me to, with Zechariah chapter 6, verse 12. The prophesied royal priest, whom we just saw, the joining of the offices between the priesthood and the throne is called in verse 12 a branch behold a man whose name is branch for he will branch out from where he is and he will build the temple of Yahweh 
Tzamak, branch, which is actually the second reference to branch in Zechariah. You can see the other one just back in chapter 3, verse 8. You'll notice in that passage, the branch is also called the servant of God, sent to remove the iniquity of the land in verse 9. So what's so significant about this term, branch, samach? Well, King David's last words in 2 Samuel 23.5 included the verbal form of the word samach as he invoked the promise of God which he had made to him for a king from his lineage forever. David asked God to cause his house to branch out, to branch beyond his own life, to preserve the everlasting covenant. Then in Psalm 132, a a rich messianic psalm emphasizing the Davidic covenant, David is recognized both as a servant of God and a lowercase m, Messiah. Then in verse 17, God affirms the promise to cause the horn, that is the seed of David, to tzamak, branch out or go forth as God's Mashiach, his Messiah, the anointed one. The one to branch out from David was to be the Messiah. In Isaiah 4.2, the branch would be beautiful and glorious when his renown filled the earth. He is called the righteous branch of David in Jeremiah 23.5 and 33.15, promised to rule and deliver Israel with perfect justice and righteousness. Therefore, Zechariah's use of the title branch was intentional to remind God's people of his promise for a future king from the line of David. Zechariah also describes the expected king with many other details. You can look at chapter 9, verse 9. The prophecy of the king coming to Jerusalem with justice and salvation, being humble, mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey, which is a connection back to the promise of a king from the lineage of Judah in Genesis 49, where God said, Judah is a lion's whelp from the prey, my son. You've gone up. He couches. He lies down as a lion, as a lion who dares rouse him up. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes. And to him shall be the obedience of all the peoples. He ties his foal to the vine, and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. There's a connection with this king, this king from the line of Judah that would have his donkey, which Christ himself fulfilled, as quoted in Matthew 21.5 and John 12.15. Zechariah also prophesied a shepherd king in chapter 13, verse 7, who would originally be rejected and struck, But in verse 9, he would lead the people to turn and call on the name of Yahweh. A shepherd king, just like David, who was the shepherd boy turned king, chosen to shepherd God's people. There are also many more details of the kingdom of God in Zechariah, which we can't detail them all today. But just note, Zechariah prophesied the kingdom of God on the earth. The Messianic king would come to judge the nations, establish his throne, and enjoy dominion to the ends of the earth. They should have expected a king much greater than David. And as we still wait for this final kingdom, we should expect Christ to have his day as king of all the earth. And that connects us next to the 
Fourth point, Messiah, the divine son. Not only should they have expected a Davidic king, but they should have expected a divine king in his divine kingdom. They should have understood that only God could rule the whole earth in such a way. But if it was difficult for the New Testament audience to accept Jesus as prophet and priest and king, the claim they found absolutely absurd was that he claimed to be God. When he declared himself to be the Son of God, equal to the Father, the great I am, ego eimi, the people picked up stones to kill him for blasphemy. They cannot handle his self-assertion as the divine Son of God, which seems to be a point of separation between the words of Christ and the messianic expectations they had set from the Old Testament. But what should they have expected? Right from the initial seeds of God's promise for the redemption, there was always a need for God to send a son to save. Man needed a seed, a son of the woman, to come and defeat sin and the devil as promised in Genesis 3.15. Abraham needed a seed, a son, to come and bring blessing to the world. Judah needed a seed, a son, who would come To be king, David needed a seed, a son, who would rule forever. That son of man needed to be the son of God. Go back, well, you can think back of 2 Samuel 7. We just read that passage right there in the Davidic covenant in verse 14. The Davidic king would also be identified as the son of God. He will be a son to me. I will be his father. Then you think of Psalm 2, a Davidic psalm. The nations are said to be in an uproar against God and against his Messiah, his anointed, in verse 2, to which Yahweh laughs and responds in verse 6, but as for me, I have established my king upon Zion. The question at that point would be, who is this king? Who is God's king? Who has he established to rule over Jerusalem? Was it David who was writing those words? In verse 7, it introduces another voice to the psalm, and it's the voice of the king. And he says to, he says, he said to me, you are my son. The king is God's own son, the son who would be given global dominion to the ends of the earth. The king who would rule from Jerusalem as God's primary representative ruler. Now look at Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10. Here we will see the expectation of God's Son coming in an astonishing way. In this chapter, the Lord gave his plan to restore his people. There's an emphasis on the tribe of Judah or the house of David, the royal lineage that was now languishing even after the return from exile. God promised to save Judah and destroy all the nations that came against Jerusalem. This is a prophecy of the restoration of the Davidic kingdom. Then in verse 10, the focus shifts to a spiritual restoration. I'll pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication so that they will look on me whom they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son. And they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. 
This is God's promise of salvation at the pouring out of His Holy Spirit, which is new covenant language for the regeneration performed in the hearts of His people, causing them to finally repent, to turn back to God. The earlier prophet Joel spoke of the same outpouring of the Holy Spirit as a powerful event in the final day of the Lord. Ezekiel 36, verses 24 and 27, describe the new covenant as a spiritual washing with water accompanied by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. For I will take you from the nations, gather you from all the lands, and bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you. You will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the flesh of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. You will be careful to observe my ordinances." These prophecies looked forward to a time when God would pour out His Holy Spirit like water onto His people and then give them new spiritual life. This is a spiritual blessing we as Christians enjoy today as partakers of grace having been grafted into the new covenant. But look at what Zechariah says a spiritual re- regeneration will accomplish. In chapter 12, verse 10, they will look to Him. To Yahweh, me, whom they have pierced. God pierced. How can the infinite, invisible, eternal God be pierced? Such questions have caused thousands of years of interpretive and translational confusion, particularly for Jews. They have tried to explain this away by changing the text. They have tried to shift the meaning by taking a non-literal approach. They have tried all kinds of biblical gymnastics to get away from reading the text plainly, which says, God was pierced. Though I have much to finish saying, I can't help but pause for a moment and urge you to consider the magnitude of this prophecy. God was pierced. How can it be? A mystery of mysteries, to be for sure. But look back at the text. We get some clarity. Notice not only the emotional effect of the spiritual awakening has on the people with intense mourning and bitter weeping, but notice also the spiritual illumination. The light bulb comes on, and they're finally able to see that the one whom they pierced was truly the Son. They will mourn for an only Son and bitter weeping for a firstborn. The two titles signify the preeminence of this Son, like the Son of God. You know these titles which were picked up in the New Testament, right? For God so loved the world that He sent His only Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. Colossians 1, starting verse 13, for he, that is God, rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Then this, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. When Zechariah combined these two words in one verse, he foretold the glory of the incarnation of the Son of God. 
God would come down, the second person of the Trinity, to dwell among us, to take on human nature, being made in every way like us, our prophet, priest, and king, to be pierced. As foreordained by God, when the Son came at the fullness of time, he was despised and rejected. He was pierced. It's prophesied by Zechariah and quoted in John chapter 19, verses 32 to 37. John wrote, So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first man and of the other who was crucified with him. But coming to Jesus, when they saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear. And immediately blood and water came out. And he, he who has seen has testified, and his testimony is true, and he knows that he's telling the truth, so that you also may believe. For these things came to pass to fulfill the scripture. Not a bone of him shall be broken. And again, another scripture, they shall look on him whom they pierced. The Son of God, the divine Son, should have been expected, and he should have been expected to be pierced. That brings us finally to point five, the Messiah as the suffering servant. The ultimate disappointment for New Testament audience concerning the Messiah was that he should suffer, be betrayed and killed. Israel wanted a savior to rescue them from their physical captivity under Rome, but they did not fully understand their need for a savior to rescue them from their spiritual captivity by dying for their sins. Even Peter, right after making that emphatic profession of Christ, Jesus, the Son of the living God in Matthew 16, refused to believe that Jesus would have to die. But God's way to the crown was always the way to the cross. The Messiah had to suffer before he would rule. This wasn't the first time Scripture depicted the Redeemer as one who would be wounded. All the way back in Genesis 3.15, the, the very first gospel promise, God cursed the serpent and promised a seed of the woman who would defeat the serpent by bruising his head while bruising, being bruised on his heel. Though the promised one would deliver that victorious blow to the devil, he too would be struck and wounded. Psalm 22, another Davidic psalm, expresses almost unfathomable suffering for a king, with David foreshadowing the crucifixion of Christ, with words often quoted in the New Testament. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I'm poured out like water, all my bones are out of joint, my heart is like wax, it is melted within me, my strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue cleaves to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs have surrounded me. A band of evildoers has encompassed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look, they stare at me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. They should have expected their king to suffer. Back in the text we just looked at, in Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10, 
overlapping with the expectation of the divine son, there's also an expectation of the suffering servant. When Zechariah used those two words, only son and firstborn, he not only highlighted the preeminence of the son of God, he also echoed previous scriptures that highlighted the necessity of a substitute sacrifice. Remember in Genesis 22 when God tested Abraham to offer up Isaac and he called Isaac his son, your only son, the one you love, even though he had Ishmael, but Yahid or the only son had become synonymous with the beloved one, the promised one, the son that Abraham hoped for now held dearest. And as the scene unfolded, you remember that God provided a ram caught by its horns in the thickest to take the place of Isaac upon the altar. Yahweh gave a substitute sacrifice for the only son. Then the term firstborn also carries a lot of redemptive connotations, taking us all the way back to the Passover exchange in Exodus. In Exodus 4.22, God called Israel his son, his firstborn son. While promising to kill the firstborn of Pharaoh, he promised the Passover for his own people. They would sacrifice an unblemished lamb and spread the blood on the doorpost. Again, the substitute died in the place of a cherished son, the firstborn son. Therefore, in Zechariah 12.10, both these terms in one text, there is an anxious anticipation of a sacrifice for the blood of a substitute to be spilled. And this time in Zechariah's prophecy, it was the Son of God who became the sacrifice. The Son became the substitute and took the place of his people. Look down to chapter 13, verse 1, which is really the conclusion to chapter 12. In that day a fountain will be opened for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for impurity. The result of the piercing of the Son of God was that a cleansing fountain would be opened for the removal of sin and impurity. From the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the death of the Son opened the way for God's people to be purified from their transgressions. This is one of the clearest predictions of the atoning death of the Son in all of Scripture. That he would lay down his life as the propitiation, satisfying the wrath of God so that his people could be cleansed of their sin. The only clear prophecy in Old Testament having much of the same language and theological implications is the song of the suffering servant in Isaiah 53. They should have expected a suffering servant. Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of Yahweh been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of parched ground. He had no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, like one whom, from whom men hid their face. He was despised, and we, we did not esteem him. But surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced 
through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. By his scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But Yahweh has called the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter. Like a sheep that is silent before its shears. So he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off of the land of living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due. His grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. But Yahweh was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief if he would render himself as a guilt offering. He will see his offspring. He will prolong his days. The good pleasure of Yahweh will prosper in his hand as a result of the anguish of his soul. He will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will allot with him a portion with the great and will divide the booty with the strong because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. Zechariah predicted in chapter 13, verse 7, the shepherd king had to be struck with the sword. He had to be the lamb who takes away the sins of the world before he would be the Lord to whom every knee shall bow. The Messiah had to come to suffer before he would come to rule. What an astonishing vision of Messiah Zechariah gives us. He is a sent prophet like Moses, who would stand before us as God's representative to reveal his word to us. He is the royal priest like Melchizedek, who would stand before God, representative to make intercession and atonement. He is the Davidic king, the righteous branch, who would rule with perfect justice and righteousness, establishing the kingdom of God to the ends of the earth. He is the divine son, the second person of the Trinity, who became a man to dwell among us, to whom Israel will one day look upon and mourn over the rejection of his first coming. And he is to be the suffering servant who was pierced for our transgressions, providing the only fountain available for the cleansing of sin and granting us spiritual regeneration. This is the Messiah, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, prophet, priest, king, divine son, and suffering servant. Let's pray. Oh Lord, how majestic is your word because it is your revelation of yourself to us, as you have mediated all that you are and all that you have done to us through your word, that you would remind us again of who we have in Christ. Father, pray that this vision from the Old Testament would remind us just how glorious he really is, that we would draw near to him, trust in him more, love him more, worship him greater, and obey him even more steadfastly. Father, bless us this morning as we, as we go from here, having heard your word, having heard this vision of the Messiah from the book of Zechariah. 
And it is in the precious name of the Son of God, your Messiah, Jesus, that we pray. Amen. Amen. Maybe just to make a couple comments of some, some book recommendations as we like to do uh, during the Sundays in July sessions. Uh, if you're interested in this kind of a topic, uh, I'll give you a couple uh, easy-to-read recommendations, and I'll give you a couple <laughs> that are maybe a little bit more academic. But uh, first of all, one of, one of the books written by one of our uh, faculty members at the Master's University, Dr. William Varner, called Messiah. Is a great consideration of, of Christ in the Old Testament. Uh, along with that is the book written by Walter Kaiser uh, called Christ in the Old Testament. And those two books together are trying to do what I tried to do this morning, to, to show you Jesus as the Messiah, the promised one, the, the anointed one from the Old Testament. Uh, then another couple books uh, that are maybe a little bit more in depth uh, would come from a new guy, a new book written by a guy named Kevin Chen. Uh, his book is called The Messianic Vision of the Pentateuch, and it's really his methodology, his approach to following th- messianic themes in the Old Testament that I have drawn for for my for my uh, THM thesis work. But um, and then I forgot the other one. Sorry, <laughs> I said I would give you one more. I think it was uh, Eugene Merrill has some good works on the Messiah in the Old Testament. Thank you. Thank you for joining me this morning. Thank you for being here, and hopefully that was an encouragement for you.